everyone and for today i have craig of twin peaks evangelion and uh we're going to discuss andy and now i'll hand over the mic thanks uh thanks colin and uh tina koto katoa uh call craig tokawingua um yeah i'm craig um i'm a long time twin peaks fan and i'm the co-host of the twin peaks evangelion podcast um dialing in from glorious aotearoa new zealand so in the, in the early 2000s i worked at a video store um and you know part-time as a student and i i picked up David Lynch's Blue Velvet one day, just on a whim, um, and just watched it one evening. Um, I was absolutely just floored with the movie. Um, I loved the the tension of it. I loved the striking kind of visual style, um, and just this neo narrative noir um, neo noir narrative. I just yeah, I just thought it was amazing. And you know, ever since that day, I sort of sought out as much as I could by this insane director, <laughs> which. Um, which ultimately led me uh, down down the road to Twin Peaks. Um, you know, fast forward a couple of years, and um, I'm I'm studying film at university, and I'm working at a in an even bigger and better video store part time. Um, I think at the time, this store that I was working at was um, probably the only one of the only places in the country that had the entire Twin Peaks series on VHS. Um, this was in the in the dark ages before it was all available on DVD, um, and you know, I lived with a few um, other film nerds and yeah, we would, I'd borrow the tapes from work and as a group, we would sort of burn through a few episodes a night, once or twice a week um, until we'd finish the season. Um, and of course that final episode just absolutely just <laughs> traumatized and terrified us and, and we loved it. Yeah. I mean, since then I've watched, I've rewatched the season several times over the years um and following the announcement of the return um i was following every kind of scrap of news that i could get my hands on um you know in the lead up to that and then you know in 2017 as the return was playing week by week um, i was just hooked all over again you know i'd consider the return probably my favorite piece of media of all time it just never fails to amaze me how just staggeringly good it is during the pandemic um i sort of had a little bit of a thought experiment and um, which eventually led to our podcast um yeah so our podcast was kind of bought out of this thought experiment i wondered um what would someone who had no history with or knowledge of twin peaks make of the return you know would it even be watchable for them um so i approached my buddy Vinny, who lives in california and um yeah, he had no history with the show or anything. And I said, well, you know, would you watch this and talk about it on a podcast with me? Um, he was keen. So that's what we did. Um, we also decided that I should probably watch some the latter parts of something that uh, I had no context for. Um, so I ended up watching the Neon Genesis Evangelion rebuild film series, um, as I'd never kind of seen the original anime. I, I get into it a little bit on the show, but, um, you know, having watched the films and then eventually watching the series, it's staggeringly good. I, I think I said on pod that it, it's probably the one show since Twin Peaks that's made me think about a piece of media as much as, as Twin Peaks did. 
So yeah, highly recommended. <laughs> and yeah, and, and anyone who has checked out any of our, our episodes knows that uh, Vinny had a blast working through The Return and trying to kind of piece together what was happening. Um, I, I did fluctuate on the Evangelion films a little bit, but now that I've seen the whole thing and have all the context for it, um, I'm all in on Eva and I'm happy to report that my friend Vinny has become a big David Lynch fanboy. So uh, yeah, so that's, that's a, little bit about, a little bit about me. Moving on to the topic of Andy, I was thinking of the first time we see him, it's when he's taking the photographs of Laura wrapped in plastic without knowing who she is, and then he starts crying on the spot. And my thing is that I was surprised to find that there were polarized reactions to this because I actually thought it was actually incredibly gut-wrenching seeing the first time I watched it. But then I also know some people that have actually laughed at that scene. That's the thing is that um, I know that Grisa Brisky, she talked about on her end where her reaction to Laura's death, that's also had polarized reactions. And she loves the fact that some people will find it hysterical. Other people will find it heartbreaking. Uh, what was your first thought about Andy the first time that uh, you see him cry on near the log and everything? Yeah, just casting my mind back to that first time I saw it. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that a show like this would have a character react to a body like this. And, you know, obviously this would have been an interesting thing for audiences at the time who were used to kind of that, um, you know, police procedural format of, you know, find a body at the start of the episode, you know, work out who, who the killer was throughout the episode and tie it in a bow. You didn't see cops reacting that way. And, you know, what watching more of the show... Um, and thinking about it later, um, I, I can absolutely see how that would be sort of a, a polarizing thing. I mean, I think in general, Twin Peaks is kind of heightened, you know, in, in terms of characters' reactions to two things and, you know, heightened situations and stuff like that. So you see a scene like Sarah Palmer crying and just absolutely wailing. Um, you know, it, it's it's not the kind of stuff that you're used to seeing on TV, especially not back then. And... Um, yeah, so everything is kind of heightened, so... The next scene that I think of uh, from the pilot with Andy, it's when he's outside the train car, and he's crying to Lucy. Uh, and this is actually another scene where I think even people who did feel very emotional at Andy's first scene, that they think... Some people think it's funny when he says, tell Harry I didn't cry. And then some people just double down on just feeling just like, really feeling for Andy in this moment. And I think that kind of speaks to... Um... I mean, I've been thinking about Andy a lot, obviously, in the last last little while um, in preparation for this. But the more I think about it, the more I'm kind of convinced that, I mean, Andy is kind of, in a way, he's kind of the emotional core of the central mystery. He kind of has, like, he displays the the emotion that, you know, you, you might feel in if you're facing that situation. Especially, you know, in, in that first scene where, he's taking, where you know, the, they're taking the photographs of, of Laura's body and all that kind of stuff. It's almost like he's kind of carrying this grief that would sort of slowly ripple out throughout the town as news of her death is kind of, is kind of shared and, um, and comes out. Yeah, it's like, it's like he's kind of expressing, expressing that grief. All the other characters are kind of, you know, a lot more stoic and, or, or just kind of shell-shocked by it. But yeah, Andy is kind of the first one to sort of crack and sort of display that grief, which obviously we then see with Sarah and um, with Donna later and, and other characters as the shock waves of, of that traumatic event sort of ripples out. Just speaking to the the scene where he's sort of um, not to tell Harry that he, that he cried or whatever, that always got me. And I think that moment where he, you know, shows how embarrassed he is at being sort of vulnerable and emotional, I think that that was something that you didn't really see 
in cop shows in the in the early 90s in the late 80s early 90s you know you, you didn't see characters especially in law enforcement um sort of showing their vulnerability and emotions so much so that would have been an unusual thing for people to see as well Oh, for sure. Since we're on the topic of Andy and the way he feels, it kind of has a rippling effect throughout the pilot. It also makes me think of that scene in The Missing Pieces, where it shows like uh, one of the few scenes with Sheriff Truman, where it's him, Hawk, and Andy, and they're talking about how that night when Laura's killed, that's when they're going to take their eyes off of Jacques Renault and uh, focus on Bernie. And there's that moment where where uh, Andy, he has that just distinct silence. And uh, Sheriff Truman asked, you know, asked him what he's thinking. I actually, as the more I watch that scene, the more I think that Andy, on some subconscious level, knew that something terrible was going to happen, but he couldn't quite articulate it. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting read. Um, yeah, we, we ju- I mean, we just, um, on our show, we just covered the missing pieces, so we did sort of talk about this a little bit. But um, yeah, I mean, but that that's a really interesting read on that, Colin. I think, um, I mean, one thing that we picked up um, just on that Bernie the Mule scene was that, um, you know, it's a really detached and kind of grey and clinical version of the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station. You know, it's in a plain grey room and it doesn't have any of the kind of the, the zaniness or the warmth that you saw in the show. And I know that that's indicative of Firewalk with me more, um, more broadly, but I think this is a real sort of, and I mean, the fact that Andy kind of just has that kind of still silent moment, it doesn't have any of the zaniness of, of, you know, slipping over or standing on a floorboard and knocking himself out or, you know, any of that kind of, any of that kind of zaniness in there. It's just, it's just quiet and sort of drab and yeah, it has no kind of life to it. Yeah. Earlier this year, I got to meet Harry Goes at, uh, for, for a second time, actually. And there's uh during this time, I actually did talk to him because one of the reasons why I love meeting actors from Twin Peaks is that I always view that David Lynch just sees something very special in them to take on whichever role that they do. And of course, Andy was, his role becomes more central in season three, but I actually, I told uh, Harry Goes that I believe that that scene, The Missing Pieces, was indicative that he saw something not just very special in Andy, but something special in Harry Goes as well for in the event that they would make sequels to Firewalk With Me. Yeah, it is. Um, it's interesting. I because uh, Lynch sort of hired him. Uh, he was he was Lynch's driver one time for something. Is that that that's how the story goes? Eh? Yeah, yeah. I think I I heard an interview with him once where he sort of he mentioned that um you know he was he was working as a driver in Hollywood or something and just got talking about to Lynch after you know driving him to a, a meeting or something like that, and um yeah the, he sort of offered him the role based on that, <laughs> which was. You know, it's total David Lynch, uh, typical for David Lynch, I think. Yeah, no, it's it's cool that you got to got to um, you know have a chat to him a couple of times. That's awesome. One thing I didn't realize till recently is that he's actually he didn't actually get too open till after season three came out. In the days of Ratchet and Plastic, John Thorne tried to get him for an interview and he said no. Then when Brad Dukes did Reflections, he also said no. Yeah, it was actually Scott Ryan from Blue Rose that actually somehow just got that interview. And I happened to be around the same time where he was more, you know, more open to going to cons and such, which I'm glad for because he's, if you ever get a chance to meet him, he's absolutely wonderful. He's also really funny as well. Yeah, he seems like a good dude. He was in the, he was in that short film um, that came out just before The Return. He was in a, a short film where he was sort of playing a fictionalized version of himself, which I've only, I'm only just sort of remembering. I haven't seen in a long time, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's. It was good. He sort of, you know, seems to, you know, not take himself too seriously and uh, have a lot of fun with the role, which is cool. I guess on the topic of not taking it too seriously, I think now is probably a good time to, you know, shift away from the more serious aspects of Andy for now and move on to 
the more quirky aspects of him in the original series. Because uh, he definitely feels like he plays the role of the fool in a lot of cases, where he's very aloof and very goofy, but in key moments, especially in season two, where uh, he always seems to present knowledge in the most unlikely fashion. Yeah, and that's that's an interesting point. Um, and I think that... Um... It, he does kind of just stumble into stuff a lot and you know he'll he'll accidentally uncover you know key pieces of evidence or you know point the you know point the other detectives or, or cooper in the right direction by accident a lot of the time you know standing on the floorboard and hitting himself in the head which you know they find the stuff under the floorboard or you know when he's leaning down to pick up his his cup of semen and he's <laughs> they see the bottom of his shoes you know that kind of stuff yeah very very sort of accidental yeah, i think the first one that made me and it, this one's like a semi lone wind compared to the other two but it's before they confront the one-armed man and uh they're weighing outside and andy just drops the weapon and uh it sets off and not only is it just bad for them and the one-armed man but uh Catherine Martell and Ben Horn, they're in close proximity. I believe Josie is also in close proximity as well. And that sets off, uh, Loki sets off a few other plot threads. But then, of course, that also prompts Dale Cooper to say, hey, we all need to chip in, especially Andy with uh, practicing. And the payoff is great because in season one, he finally gets it, uh, you know, in the at like the most critical moment with uh, Jacques Renault and everything. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. I think... Um... You know, they, they did sort of set up a little a little mini arc there around there. Um, you know, the whole scene where he um where he does sort of, you know, shine, he you know, shoots Shark so that um, before he can get Truman. Um, you know, this this was absolutely sort of set up as a um you know, a real sort of moment, you know, of character development. You know, he has this kind of bumbling, almost comic relief character who can sort of come through and have his little moment to shine. Yeah, absolutely. Moving on from the season one finale to the season two premiere, uh, we brought up a couple times, but the part when he accidentally lands on the floorboard and it shows uh, Leo's shoes, the thing they found was interesting is that my uh, one of my friends, he's going through the original series slowly. He's a huge fashion connoisseur. Like He knows like his shoe brands pretty well. And the things that he brought up, how he's like, oh, Golden Circle, that doesn't sound like anything I've heard before. Like, he even tried looking into it to see if there was a real brand in, like, the early 90s. And uh, obviously it wasn't, but every time I could think of Golden Circles, all I could think of was uh, Laura's Golden Orb in Part 8. And I don't think it really pertains to that, but just that there's certain elements that Lynch just hones in on. And uh, I wasn't sure if you had any stances on, you know, just whether it's in context with the shoes or Laura's Golden Orb, if you thought there was more of a significance to the shoes. Um, not really. Um, you know, you do you do have references to shoes all the way through. You've got Leo doing his, you know, new shoes kind of thing. Or you've got, I mean, I guess in the return, you've got, you know, as Cooper's going through the wall socket and his shoes kind of pop off, which... <laughs> makes me laugh every time yeah you've got i mean you've got those kind of those kind of references but no i mean i wouldn't i don't think there's too much stock in it it's an interesting kind of MacGuffin. but um but just on that scene though where he does because i think what's happening in that scene uh oh rosenfield's kind of coming in to town and andy's kind of yelling out and he's going oh agent rosenflower or whatever <laughs> whatever he's saying and then he he steps on the on the loose board having that come after the episode where he has had his big kind of you know, his big dramatic character moment where he's, you know, saved Truman from being shot or whatever. I felt like it did kind of undercut it a little bit. You know, whatever progression he's made 
from being this kind of bumbling clown figure to you know having this real good character moment um, there, it did kind of get undercut a little bit by by having a you know having him step on the on the board and smack himself in the face. Yeah. I I guess it got a little because I remember it's a scene that I've warmed up to more each time I do a rewatch. But I remember thinking to myself, I was like, oh, this scene might be gone for a little too long. And to put it in perspective, <laughs> I'm one of those people where the very first time I watched the scene with the waiter before the giant, I remember just being completely on board for that. But I remember thinking oh, that the scene yeah. with uh, with Andy in the floor, but I was like, oh, this this might be going on a little too long. And it might be a little tone deaf, but I find myself liking that scene more and more, especially since, at least in the context of Andy, he is the one who's able to uncover some that uh, Truman, Hawk, and probably even Albert would have overlooked. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right, though. He does kind of, you know, an- another show would have maybe done like maybe two or three seconds of that kind of stumbling, wavering around kind of thing. But Lynch just, yeah, he, he holds on it for so long and he just keeps cutting back to it. And yeah, it's um, it's very funny. It seems like primarily the thing that Andy's concern is um, in throughout the part of season two is when Dick Tremaine shows up. And uh, the thing is that Dick Tremaine is not a character I particularly like, but I love Ian Buchanan in that role. Uh, the reason why I bring oh, that up, great. Uh, yeah, the reason why I bring that up is that Harry Goes and Ian Buchanan they have great chemistry, even the weaker storylines together. During during the a lot of the stuff with with the triangle with Andy, Dick, and Lucy, where uh, they bring a lot of levity that I feel like is uh, kind of needed. And actually, even when we get to the stuff like Devil Little Nicky, where I'm like, yeah, this is a really bad plot thread, but it seems like at least Harry Goes <laughs> and Ian Buchanan are at least having fun. And it softens the blow considerably for me. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, folks would point to maybe like, you know, the James and Evelyn subplot or Nadine's amnesia as kind of being the, you know, one of the low points of, of season two. I think little Nicky, who might be the Antichrist, you know, I think that art kind of gives them a run for their money. Um, It's, it's, it's really dumb. <laughs> I don't like it. But I think you're right, though. I think, um, yeah, Andy and Dick Tremaine do have a great chemistry with that, even if it's kind of um, not not necessarily adversarial, but they're just kind of, you know, they, they both effectively want the same thing, but they're coming at it from different directions. And there's a real, you know, and, and Dick obviously has a lot of um, prejudice or, you know, he, he's, he's, he, he feels that he's in a different class to Andy. Yeah, I was going to say is that I don't think it's uh, adversarial on Andy's end. I do think it is, however, on Dick's end, though. He just just seems like the type of guy where he just makes everything a competition, even if someone is completely unaware of it. Actually, the other one is that that I was thinking about this uh, probably during my first rewatch, is that there's a scene when Douglas and uh, Lana Milford, they have their wedding finally. And I was thinking about how at that scene where Denise is dancing with Andy... And I thought it was a nice, subtle touch because, you know, throughout that whole scene, or not the whole scene, but throughout uh, Denise's presence, there's always like a low-key point of contention whenever she's in a room because, you know, it's a trans woman in a small town. But I, I just love the fact that Andy is the one who's just like totally on board with dancing with her at the wedding and it just completely doesn't care about anything in terms of judgment. And I'm not sure if that was anything that was explicit. I forget who directed that episode. And I don't know if it was something that, you know, the director just kind of thought seemed right. But I think it just, it actually, for me, that's a scene that goes a long way with Andy's character. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess I, I guess there's, um, there's a couple of ways that we could read that scene. I mean, you know, given the context that it was filmed in the early 90s, where representation of, of trans folk was not great, <laughs> let's say, you know, you could 
it could be read as like a um this is andy he's you know he's he doesn't judge people he doesn't you know have these kind of prejudices which would have been a lot more rife um back then um you know he's, he's a pure character you could i don't know maybe maybe a more cynical person might think this kind of speaks to andy being oblivious to to the fact that this is um you know a trans woman which you know might you know which is problematic i guess um but you know it just you know it seems you could take that either way i think i think i think it probably is the former i think that he probably it just is just a demonstration of the fact that he doesn't care he just sees this this person as a person and you know he doesn't have any of those prejudices i mean i think even like I think you know Hawk dead names Denise and you know does does stuff like that, which you know would was is you know a lot more cringeworthy um, watching it in twenty twenty two. But uh, but yeah, I think I think Andy's treatment of um, of Denise was was really good in that moment. On the topic of Hawk, um, this actually thought was a funny uh, little part in the secret history where it's uh, during the part about Ed and Nadine. Where uh, one of the quotes is about uh, Hawk in the best way possible says that Andy has a talent for gossip. It's like a ninth black belt tier type of talent. And that Andy thinks himself as more of an oral historian than like anything about gossip. Uh, Which I thought was funny because it kind of reaffirms the idea that, you know, he is like the fool in terms of kind of presents knowledge even when he doesn't try to. Right. No, I was just gonna say I don't. I don't quite know what to make of that. I mean, it's you know he doesn't seem overtly you know poetic in his in his prose or um you know or even you know wordy. I guess he he doesn't sort of he kind of speaks fairly plainly. Yeah. No, it's just interesting that Hawke might describe him that way. Oh yeah, and I guess you know it's also worth mentioning is that I know that uh, in the case of the Secret History, there's a lot of stuff with this and the Final Dossier where you take it with a grain of salt, and it's more of just a uh you know there's more so this idea that. You know, it's probably worth addressing because, you know, it's something that was brought up and people have a certain subjectivity behind it. And I thought that there's a lot of stuff about the Ed and Norma stuff that definitely does not 100% correlate. But I thought at least in terms of what they do with uh, Andy and Hawk, I thought, oh, well, this sounds pretty much in line with the two of them. No, I haven't read the secret history for a long time, um, so I have to refresh my memory on that. But um, yeah, absolutely, there's a lot of discrepancy there and, um, you know, definitely a a grain of salt is required. One interesting thing, though, about Andy um, and I guess just his artistic nature, um, this is something that I sort of picked up on, was um, he, he does have a really good way with um you know he is he is a talented artist he's a talented you know sketch artist and you know he's he's kind of relied on to you know he does he does the police sketch of bob he does the am i imagining this or did it did it have any he, he did the i think during a court trial he, he does a picture of the back of leland's head or something like yeah that. He's, it goes <laughs> all over his head of uh how these police sketches work but yeah, on its own it yeah. does look pretty good putting aside the yeah. missing the critical aspect of that's it. that's right yeah it's been a while since I've watched it, but um, but you know, I just thought there was a kind of like his artistic abilities, you know, as a character trait were sort of an interesting addition. I mean, if you were just to describe Andy's characteristics, you know, on paper he's not always a great cop for the most part. You know, just you know, he's he's not the sharpest tool in the shed, and he you know accidentally lets off guns, and he you know bumbles around a lot. But it, it's almost like his ability to kind of do these police sketches is kind of like a a talent which kind of they need at the sheriff's department and they're sort of keeping around for that reason almost so just it was just a really interesting kind of addition that they 
you know that they sort of gave him that that talent as a as a character trait and uh actually this is uh kind of expanding off of that is that uh the two critical moments of course outside of the um andy dick and lucy triangle is that uh during the widom earl case uh, Andy's the one who knocks over the bonsai plant, and that's when they find out that Wyndham Earl's been bugging them this whole time. And then also, and it's if only it went a little bit differently for all of them, is that he's the first one to figure out that the that you know everything they see in Owl Cave that it's actually a map. And the thing is that he he finds out, and they're actually at the sheriff station, and it takes from going from the sheriff station down to the roadhouse for Miss Twin Peaks, and then after the whole debacle with Annie and Wyndham Earl, where he finally can present the knowledge to them. And the thing is that, you know, think of how different it could have been if theoretically, you know, Harry Truman and Dale Cooper said, like, you know, gave him the extra five seconds. Yeah, you're right. It's, it's an interesting example of one of those kind of um, moments where if the timing was slightly different, it could have gone very differently. You know, you know, if, if Jade hadn't driven over that bump in the road and made... Dougie dropped the key then as they drove past the hitman you know things would have gone very differently you know it's just yeah it's, it's one of those little examples yeah good point and this one uh, obviously it's a bit of a sillier plot thread but I feel like it transitions pretty well into season three is that uh naturally it, I, I think everyone uh regardless of how they felt about you know season two in this arc I think that people knew that Lucy was going to pick Andy to be the father from the get-go but the more I rewatch season three, specifically Wally Brando's scene, the more I am one hundred percent convinced that is Dick Tremaine's song. But I have, I it's in my <laughs> mind. I mean, everyone's welcome to their own opinion, but for me, it is unquestionably not Andy's song. Yeah, I I definitely fluctuate on that. I you know some days I you know I think absolutely it is. Some days it's like nah, it's definitely Dick's. It I keep saying it. He is definitely <laughs> Dick's son. That's what I'm saying. But I think ultimately. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. I mean, I think late in season two when, um, you know, Andy kind of says, you know, he basically flat out says to Lucy, like, you know, I, I don't care if this is not my, you know, m not my baby biologically, you know, I'll, I'll be the father. For him to do something with so much love and so pure that he would, you know, take on this absolutely life altering and life defining responsibility is, is massive. And um, I do want to talk about the Wally Brando scene because, um, yeah, that's that's a really interesting one for me. But yeah, I think I think he's just, yeah. I mean, it doesn't really matter, you know, as far as the Brennan family is concerned. Wally is Andy's son, and just in that scene, Andy and Lucy are just absolutely just so enamored with their boy. Who is? <laughs> I mean, Im imagine. Imagine talking, trying to have a conversation with somebody like Wally Brando. It would be so, <laughs> it'd be so infuriating. In all fairness, um, you look at someone like Frank Truman in that scene, and it's pretty firmly established that uh, he has this tough as nails job that's uh, pretty thankless. Uh, you know, his wife there's a lot of emotional problems, and that also you know is a factor. And the thing is that he's pretty good about keeping his patience in any given scene, but you just have this moment of just low key just internal screaming on frank truman's part where it's like yeah that's interesting and you could just tell frank truman just wants to go inside and just wants this to be done yeah that's that's kind of what i wanted to touch on with this um we talked about this on one of our episodes when, when we covered this episode uh, when we covered this part of the the return 
But um, one thing that really struck me about that scene is that you know the first time you're watching it, you're sort of like you're rolling your eyes and you're like and you're laughing at this nonsense that this kid is sort of spouting. And all those scenes where it cuts back to Frank and you just start to kind of see the stoic look on his face and you can kind of tell that he just wants this conversation to be over so he can go into his nice warm office. And like I said, Lucy and Andy are just so infatuated with their with their boy. On a rewatch though. Once you have learned that Frank Truman's son had killed himself, that just recontextualizes everything. Because you're kind of, you know, you're kind of seeing, you know, you put yourself in Frank's shoes in that situation. You know, he's talking to this this boy and seeing how much love there is for his parents. And you can just imagine all he's thinking about is his own son who he doesn't get to have those moments with anymore and it, it's just you know the first time you watch it it's it's funny and it's goofy and it's like you know you're rolling your eyes at it but the you know subsequent times you're watching it it feels it's so heartbreaking man like it's really like you know this Wally Brando he's, he's an idiot like let's not mince words and just for Frank to be you know to sort of stand there and put up with all of this is Oh, I just really felt for him. Eh? It was just so, so hard to watch. Honestly, that's a great observation. I never made that connection of, uh, I mean, of course, that's a that's a huge thing with um, Frank Truman and his wife that they lost their son, but I never thought of that in context with Wally Brando. But I actually, I because I, I always try to do a rewatch once a year for all three seasons. That is something I'll have to keep in mind specifically for that scene because, you know, I, that's what I like is that there's even stuff that doesn't land for you in, or when you first watch Twin Peaks. There's stuff that you'll find something else like, oh, this rings true to me now. Or, I, you know, I feel like this scene, you know, has a different meaning to me now. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, to a lesser extent, you could, you know, you could say the same thing with the, the scenes where Doris is coming in and berating Frank for, you know, about the black mold or about the father's car or whatever that is, you know, the first time you're watching it, you're laughing because this is all just, you know, shrieking, um, you know, wife kind of stereotype. But then once you do learn that, you know, she's also processing this grief um, from their son that they've lost, you know, it just, it just, you, you see those scenes with, with different eyes on a rewatch. It's, um, yeah, it's powerful stuff, man. And it's, it's so subtle, like the, you know, you really have to sort of look for it to, um, to sort of pick those out. Yeah. Since we're on the topic of uh, relationships and such, Andy and Lucy, where that's like a, they have that purity that even their lowest points in the original series, and I guess the, really their lowest point is like which type of chair they want in season three. But those uh, Kimmy Roberts and Harry Goes have such great chemistry where you can tell that they get along with each other outside of the show. And uh, yeah, that's that's like one of the best romances. I mean, of course, you know, Ed and Norma, like that's, you know, that's like the ultimate true love. But the, the fact that Andy and Lucy, they just like go through these ups and downs together and just have that purity in the relationship. It's something that I feel like that just it's so it's so hard for me to like, you know, I, I just can't stress just how great it is to see those two on screen at a given moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, even in a scene where, you know, they're arguing about what color chair we should they should get i mean I, I feel like the function of that scene is to kind of is i guess to show that even if andy gets into this kind of determined no i'm putting my foot down i'm getting this color chair that lucy does kind of have this way of kind of pouting her lip and just getting him to soften kind of easily i mean you could argue that they've sort of developed this routine over time where they're kind of you know trying to trick each other into doing what what they want to happen through reverse psychology or whatever but 
I mean, I think to be honest, I don't think either of them are savvy or manipulative enough to, to pull that off. I guess it's worth mentioning, and we're kind of sliding back to the original series for a moment, but when you said the way that uh, his uh, persuasion or their lack of, it made me think of the scene when Andy confronts Albert, where it's one of those moments where I, th- I believe it must be before uh, Albert comes around with Harry Truman, is that Andy just like is just done with Albert just talking down to people. And it takes a lot for a character like that to say something like that to Albert. Uh, you know, it's one thing for Harry Truman to firmly establish that he'd like knock uh, he'd knock Albert out, but for for Andy, that's like a a much larger leap. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think him him standing up to Albert in that moment. I think that's an example of Andy being, I guess, almost the emotional core of the show, at least as far as the sheriff's department goes. I mean, it kind of I don't know if they necessarily had the would put it in this language back then when they were filming it but um, I think it shows his development to kind of push against I guess you'd call it maybe toxic masculinity you know because I mean I think what what's happening in that scene is that you know he's he's crying again I think he sees a photo of Laura or something and he cries and then Albert sort of mocks him and then he sort of decides to stand up and he calls him Albert Roosevelt or something and then he he just sort of sees his peace and um, you know storms out kind of thing but it's a marked difference between one of his first scenes where he's on the phone to Lucy and you know doesn't want Harry to know that he's been crying. He doesn't want to expose his kind of vulnerability, and it's a mark. It's a big difference between that and this scene where he's kind of like yeah, absolutely standing up to Albert, who is nothing but you know vitriol <laughs> for the most part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's a huge development which is sort of articulated there since we're on the topic of of how he handles himself during the police work it does make me think of like when you see andy on the job in season three in particular he is a lot more on point now than he was in the original series one of the scenes i have written down is that in part six it's after um it's after the boy has been run over and andy has to go and ask questions and there's the guy who's just like very frantic of like hey you can't be here right now i'll be there it's at some point in the late afternoon and it shows i believe that andy waits for a good 20 minutes to a half hour and then it shows a door that's ajar i wasn't sure if he had any takes on you know what this meant because the first time i watched it i thought like oh this guy's just a no-show maybe this will come back up again but i think there's something more to it there's a more esoteric uh, aspect going on this is one of the most intriguing scenes with andy in it in, in the return i think you know i mean you sort of spoke to his him being more on point these days and um, i mean I'm, I'm i'm not a cop but i assume that if you were questioning someone in relation to a hit and run that resulted in a in a child being killed it's pro- it's probably not protocol to just agree with them to meet up later <laughs> you know you probably want to you probably want to deal with that there and then so i don't i don't know I mean, I think it. I think the reason he probably did that is that he could see that this character, this farmer or whatever he was credited as, you know, was in a frantic state, and that, you know, he probably just did did want to do the right thing and give him that little bit of space to do to deal with whatever he needed to deal with. But I mean, you probably wouldn't do that in real life if you're a if you're a police officer. As far as the door door being ajar and all that kind of stuff, I mean, it definitely hints at something something uh, something bad happening to that character. And all the visual language and all the you know soundscape and everything do, definitely did sort of infer that. I love it as a scene because it is one of the smaller kind of like lingering moments that doesn't get answered in the return. And you know, we're just kind of speculating and we'll be speculating on it for the rest of time, pretty much. Um, so I do like it in that regard. Yeah, I remember um, at the time there was some, especially the scene where he's, you know, waiting for the for the farmer at the at Sparkwood in twenty one or whatever. Um, I remember there was a lot of speculation in the in the community at the time that Andy might have become crooked over those years. Did you 
Remember this? Uh, admittedly, no. I know that uh, Kimmy Robertson, she had a funny little story about how Andy and Lucy can afford like these expensive watches, but I've never heard anything in universe yeah. about Andy being crooked. Well, no, it was more of a it was more of a fan kind of speculation, you know, that maybe he was in cahoots with the with the farmer or something like that, and that maybe that Rolex on his wrist was you know a payoff or a bribe or something or. Something like that. I remember there was a little bit of chatter around that at the time. Um, if you Occam razored this whole situation, it's it's probably, you know, Andy saw a decent looking knockoff <laughs> Rolex at the Twin Peaks flea market or something. On the topic of um, with uh, Kimmy Robertson, she made this funny backstory. And um, Harry Goes actually thought it was really funny as well, where her her idea was that basically they don't make enough money like you know with him being like a deputy at the sheriff's station so they go off to like vegas on these like random offshoot weekends and that's uh that's where they make their money and that's how he can like ex- you know afford like a rolex watch and such uh yeah kimmy <laughs> robertson definitely has like her own way of uh of like you know looking at it and I, I mean, I don't think that's really how, what realistically, that's what uh, Andy and Lucy do, but I did find it like an amusing, it was an amusing way to look at it. Yeah, I'm just imagining that, you know, Andy's secretly some like card card counting savant, or, you know, something like that. It's just this hidden, hidden talent that never never comes out in the show. It would be pretty funny. I do wonder, because um, now that we're, you know, this is kind of returned to the more serious aspect of that scene, is that uh, one of my, one of my viewpoints on it is that that's the character of Billy that we hear about throughout throughout the rest of the season. Because in part six, uh, the door's ajar. And, uh, you know, at, at a certain point, I thought maybe it was Richard Horn. Uh, you know, maybe he saw in from the outside looking in and that he wanted to go attack him. Because in part seven, it's that part, it's that shot, reverse shot at the Double R Diner where a guy runs in screaming, has anyone seen Billy? And then later on, we have a scene at the roadhouse where someone's like, oh, yeah, my mom's friend just came in with blood all over. Uh, he just uh, he, and he ran back out. And then a big thing for Audrey is that she's worried about her, about like Billy, and that the whole crux of her is like leaving, leaving this place. And there's a lot about Audrey's storyline that the timeline doesn't quite match up with everything else. But at least the core part of Billy seems to fit in pretty well. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I have I have heard that theory and it's it's an interesting one. Um yeah, I mean, ultimately we'll never know. Yeah, there's there's no way to sort of no way to know. I guess. <laughs> uh, actually, this is uh, now moving on to what I think is not only the most important part for Andy, but I think the most important scene in all of Twin Peaks. It's uh, in part fourteen when they go to Jack Rabbit's palace, and it shows that everything there's like I guess a portal, if you will, is opening up, and uh, it shows Andy out of all of them is the one who's chosen effectively to sit across from the firemen. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, you know, there's a lot I can say about this, but I'd, I'd love to hear, you know, wh- what you got out of that and if it's changed over time or how, uh, how you view that scene in general. So I remember distinctly my first time watching it and, you know, you've got all these characters there and then the fireman chooses Andy. And I remember my first thought was like, why the hell out of all these people here, why did he choose Andy into his domain and trust him with this crucial knowledge? And I mean, all of the other deputies on paper are, are better options. You know, you've got Hawk obviously is, is tied into, you know, a lot of this this mystical stuff. He's, he's a lot more in tune with that. And we've seen that in the return with his map and, and all this kind of stuff. He, you know, he's open to this stuff. He knows about this stuff. Even Bobby, you know, is Major Briggs' son who, you know, obviously had a really close connection with a lot of this and, and knew a lot about all this stuff. Um, so, you know, there's a more obvious parallel there. 
even Frank seems he doesn't quite understand what's happening, you know, especially in his conversations with with Hawk. But he is open to hearing it. Like he doesn't sort of discount things like Harry used to do so much. But yeah, the the fireman just chooses Andy, and I remember that. I remember thinking that was really strange, a really strange decision the first time. The more I think about it, and the more I rewatch it, though, I think it probably, I think probably what it was, or probably what made the fireman choose Andy or put Andy in that position, was that it, it probably is his purity and his kind of big heart. Maybe those were kind of necessary attributes for this plan to kind of play out. It is interesting that sort of immediately after the fireman's kind of big PowerPoint presentation, um, Andy kind of seems to instantly understand the severity of the situation. And he kind of gains the presence and the authority required in that moment to sort of take action and, you know, get um, NATO out of there and, and do what he needs to do. Even though that kind of that kind of stuff does kind of fade over time, though, which was another interesting kind of aspect of that. Yeah, it's uh, well, the first time I watched it. Um, it's sort of like I was the same page with you in terms of like thinking like, oh well, Hawk, he's much more central to you know uncovering all this. Bobby has come a long way from the original series, so he's uh, you know more than had his redemption. And then you're also right about Frank Truman, where it's uh, you know like uh, by even the Logley's own admission that the Truman brothers are true men. And then uh, Andy seems like the odd one out, but the more I thought about it, the more it made sense because this is a bit of a chicken or the egg, but you think of his encounter with the firemen and how just very aloof that Andy is, if maybe this encounter is a thing that had this omnipresent touch to him in terms of like, you know, this is technically why he is the way he is, or if he was chosen for it. But the thing that makes it so interesting is that, is that, Andy is presented with what I think is some of the most important information. Like, for example, um, you know, he sees the, uh, it's the splitting of uh, Cooper and Mr. C, which uh, has definitely had its own fair share of analysis. But then uh, it also shows uh, in the pilot of the girl crying upon finding out that Laura's been killed. And uh, the, and I think this is the most important frame in all of Twin Peaks is that it shows the, uh, the homecoming, uh, the homecoming photo of Laura and it shows the two like symmetrical angels. Cause the one is from fire walk with me at the end when Laura gets her angel, but then there's also the mirror image of that exact same angel where, um, you know, I, I think that when I look at season three, I think that there's primarily two realities that we're seeing one where Laura is killed, the others where she goes missing. And I look at that angel, the mirror one, is that even in this other reality where Cooper more than threw a wrench and would be the fate of Laura, that she would still get that angel in the end in one way or another. But uh, then there's also other stuff like like the placement of Lucy that Andy would do in part 17. You know, because there's that part when Mr. C comes back, uh, him and Lucy, and to a certain extent, Frank Truman are skeptical. Well, not skeptical, but they're, uh, they're relatively oblivious to that this is not actually Cooper. And the thing is that something kicks into high gear for Andy where he suddenly realizes like, oh, Lucy needs to be here at this exact moment. And then uh, he knows to get Freddy from downstairs. Uh, luckily, Freddy, uh, he knows a way to outsmart Chad. But but yeah, there's just a lot in that scene with the firemen that is incredibly central to part 17. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the way that... Um the way that, that that sort of knowledge or, you know, the authority that the fireman sort of gives him to share all that knowledge with him and then he just instantly knows it and knows exactly how to act. 
I think that that does kind of start to fade throughout the rest of that episode. And I like how in part 17, you know, when, when Andy does see um, Mr. C, you know, coming up the driveway or whatever, and thinks it's Coop, he's, he's, you know, he's giddy with excitement. But then as the scene kind of plays out, you can kind of see this realization starting to come back up. It's, it's kind of like a, you know, it's faded off at one end, it's tapered off, and then it's kind of like slowly building up again. And he kind of, yeah, I really love that kind of slow building realization that, you know, this, this is what needs to happen. And he needs to be the one to move all these pieces around, like, you know, move all these people around like chess pieces to, so that, um, you know, the, this plan can, can be fulfilled. Yeah. I, lo- I love that. Yeah. It's uh, and obviously, uh, you know, in, in like uh, twin peaks fans, uh, we all pretty much love Andy and Lucy, but you know, in the universe, they're kind of undermined in certain cases, but I do love how apart from Freddie, that they're the, like, uh, Andy and Lucy are the ones that really get this, uh, get this to work in terms of Andy knowing to put everything in a right spot. Then Lucy is the one who actually shoots Mr. C right at the exact moment. Yeah. What was your reaction to that when first time you saw that? I think, believe it or not, I kind of just accepted it. I was like, yeah, this, this seems like the right, uh, this seems like the right way to effectively conclude Lucy's storyline, especially when she finally has the, I know how phones work now. Yeah. So, uh, I, I don't know straight. And I think there's just certain things where I think I, I spent so much time questioning certain aspects of season three that there's certain parts where I just think like, okay, yeah, this, this sounds right. Um, and me, I was like, maybe I shouldn't think too much about it. But no, it's in the case of Lucy's arc, and I guess this would also tie up Andy's arc in some way as well, is that I still feel pretty much the same, is that it feels relatively fitting for an ending that technically doesn't end, just just by the way how, uh, how the whole we live inside a dream sequence ends. Like, it's probably about as good of an ending as we can get with those characters in particular yeah it, it does it does tie that up nicely i think i've said everything on my end about andy um it at least pertain to the original series season three and then what i had about uh about the secret history did you have any uh final thoughts about andy i guess i guess the central thesis of my thoughts around andy is that he he seems to be you know there's the argument, there's the, the sort of the famous argument out there that David Lynch likes to present um, darkness and light, you know, in sort of equal measure and, you know, um, and, you know, love and um, nastiness or whatever, or the, you know, see the underbelly, all, all that kind of stuff that academics have been spouting for years. I, I feel like Andy as a character is maybe the biggest personification of just that love as a concept. You know, he has, he has so much love for for lucy you know he is like i said he's kind of the emotional core of of the of the central mystery he's the you know he's, he's one of the people that shows you know a lot of emotion and often will sort of express the emotion of a whole community or um or people that might be suppressing emotion perhaps and i just i just think he's you know it's, it's easy to write andy off as just a comedy you know, a clownish kind of, you know, comic relief kind of character. But I think he does have multitudes just in his expression of, of his emotion and just just that he he doesn't have prejudice against people. He he is a pure soul. I mean, even even the scene where he's sitting in the double R and he's, you know, he's saying the the French saying from Harold Smith's suicide note and he's just, you know, sitting there being being lonely. It's not quite the the tortured artist stereotype, but it, it does sort of show his his emotional kind of attachment there. And um, yeah, I, I just think he's, I just think he's a really he's a really good character. One last scene that I did want to kind of talk about too, and this and this again speaks to it is um, 
his kind of final moment in the in episode 29 in the season two finale you know he's sitting there with truman truman's kind of laser focused on watching the glastonbury grove sycamore trees waiting for coop to kind of come out and i mean andy's kind of he's sitting there he doesn't know whether he should be doing more to help or whether harry just needs him to sit there or whether it would be more useful for him to go and get breakfast and coffee for him you can just kind of feel that andy's been kind of like churning this over in his head for hours like oh you know should i say something i wonder if harry wants me to get him some coffee you know is it okay for me to ask him this you know and and he finally just kind of blurts it out but you can the way that it's shot and the way that it's kind of blocking everything you can kind of tell that he's just been sitting and percolating on that for hours and i think that's again a reflection of of his love he wants to do the right thing he wants to be as helpful as he can yeah in all at all times and that's a personification of his love that's absolutely great um yeah i think that uh that concludes the episode as best as as possible um apart from twin peaks evangelion was there any other anything else you want to plug uh you know now that we've reached the end um no no i mean um no i you know if if people are interested in um hearing what somebody that uh, hasn't seen season one and two of twin peaks but has seen the return thinks um yeah check out twin peaks evangelion um you know we're on most of the platforms um we're on twitter at tp evangelion um and instagram at hang on tp colon e is our instagram handle or tp semicolon e at gmail.com if you want to get in touch with us um but no i mean i just yeah thank you colin for having me on today i think it's it's this has been a blast and i'm um I'm really happy to talk about Andy with you. Yeah, I had a great okay. time as well. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great insight. Even the, you know, even stuff that's not 100% to Andy, like the whole dynamic of Wally Breno and Frank Truman. That's a lot that I'm going to have sink in for, you know, when I have my upcoming rewatches. But no, thanks mm. again, Craig. I had an absolute blast talking with you as well. Absolutely. No, happy to do it. This is, this is great. Together, forever.